Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. I am Bailey Bennett Andrade here with CEO of Epic Education, Dr. Nancy Dome. And today we have Dolores and Randy Lindsay here with us to share their expertise. These two have a long career history around creating cultural proficiency in education. They currently collaborate with colleagues interested in providing equitable educational opportunities for all students through the Center for Culturally Proficient Educational Practice. How are you both doing today? Doing really well. We're doing well, Betty. Thank you. That's great. All right. So just to begin, how is it that you created this passion for building equity in educational spaces? That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it started as a classroom teacher. Uh, I started in a junior high school in Illinois. And seeing that tracked classes had different profiles, high achieving classes were almost white. And the low achieving classes were um, mixed, but predominantly students of color, mostly African-American. I was in the mid-60s and then uh, went to the University of Illinois for my master's degree and took my first sequence of courses in what the time was called Negro American history. And so now I'm getting, you know, information in addition to my experience. So I started going back and taking a look at my school somewhat differently. So that became the foundation for, for my work and how this has really framed my career since that time. Like Randy, um, been in this business of education for over 50 years. And um, I started uh, my teaching and uh, grew up in the Deep South and Mississippi and started my teaching in Louisiana during the time of court order desegregation. Mm-hmm. And up until that time, I had been, uh, as, as a white woman, I'd been in classrooms and uh, had been taught by only white teachers and had been in classrooms with only white classmates. Mm -hmm. And then to be um, my first year of teaching, to be in classrooms of African-American students and white students, Uh, uh, mandated busing. uh, So communities were going from highly segregated communities to forced desegregation. And then over my career, watching resegregated classrooms. Being interested in equity issues has always been part of my work mm-hmm. all the way through um, my teaching and then a, a secondary administrator and then a county office administrator and then higher ed. Uh, it, it's always been part of my work. And then discovering the work with Randy and colleagues around cultural proficiency. Mm-hmm really gave us a framework to work with uh, and and be able to identify um, the the framework itself uh, to work with equity and and identify inequities Mm -hmm. in schools and communities. If I can build on that, my teaching, and I actually gravitated to the Central Valley of California and taught two years in a high school there, and was introduced to a third population that I had not had experience or any academic background, mostly Mexican-American children and Native children. So as a history teacher, I was finding out there was these gaps in my academic background, let alone an experiential background. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was invited to come back to that district in Illinois to co-lead the school desegregation effort. The man who was put in charge of it had been my roommate in college, and he was asked to select a white person who could work with him. And so I went back to that district, spent a year there and the two years in suburban Cincinnati with Ray Terrell. And I kept seeing all these 
these references, very authentic references and experiences around this concept called racism. Mm -hmm. And I was not unclear on the negative effects of racism, but because of the work of Robert Terry and a few other people around for whites only, I started wondering why is it we know the negative effects, but we don't know how people benefit from that system of racism. Mm -hmm. So I was allowed uh, the opportunity, I got a, a fellowship at Georgia State University. So I spent about two years really studying racism and crafted my dissertation around how white people benefit, particularly white men benefit from systemic uh, practices, racism, mm -hmm. sexism, heterosexism. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's, it's shaped my career since that point. because It gave me a, a crystal clear vision Mm -hmm. Once we found the word cultural efficiency and the way Terry cross framed that, uh, and it really critical race theory just fits in perfectly. So mm -hmm. it all came together for me by the time I got to Cal State Los Angeles. Yeah, you know what's interesting um, that you say that, Randy, about that that shift of under of not just understanding, you know, the negative impact, but understanding the the benefits for for white people particularly. Um, there was an article that I came across the other day. And it was um, why we need White History Month, and um, and it was really. Did you see that? Did yeah, you, did in my you, inbox. <laughs> yeah, it was, and and I and I read it because I, you know, for so long my narrative has been, you know, it'd be nice when we don't need Black History Month, but we need it right now. But it's really that same idea of you know having White History Month where we're actually teaching the truth, like where we actually. You know, there's so many holes and gaps, you know, what you just explained about your experience, I think is true for um, most, not, not only Americans, but particularly white Americans, the gap in knowledge about the benefits of racism. And so I, I just thought it was an interesting concept to really focus on how to educate white people on on, on whiteness, on, on the history of racism, on the, on the impacts and actually begin to fill those gaps. Because I, I really honestly believe, and maybe I'm just naive, but I really believe that, that when we know better that we do better. And there's been so much of the narrative um, for white people to maintain the status quo. You know, I, I don't know if, and maybe I am naive, you know, mm -hmm. but um, I'm hopeful. That's why we included such a big section in the uh, Manual for School Leaders on privilege and entitlement. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I hope I'm not getting ahead here, but uh, <laughs> when Kakanza, Nui Robinson, Ray Terrell, and I did the first proposal for, for this culture efficiency book, uh, we built that chapter around my dissertation. And we had several publishers say they would publish the book, but that chapter was a little bit too hot. Ah. If, if you took that out, we could probably publish your book. And that was, you know, that was non-negotiable as far as we're concerned. And I was fortunate enough when I was working with Ray in Cincinnati to uh, encounter the work of Robert Terry for Whites Only, 1971, mm -hmm. and the work of Pat Vidal, which preceded the, the desegregation work that we were doing. Mm -hmm. And so that became, for me, a way for me to crystallize my own learning. And that, that the work of desegregation, the work of integration, was not about helping those kids. It was about helping the adults in the school be more effective with all kids. Yeah, that was a revolutionary concept because, because everything else was, you know, to that point, was a, a sort of a social welfare model of, of teaching and, yeah. and motivation. So it was a, it was a real shift in thinking for us, and it was liberating at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
You know, so when I when I think about your work, um, you know, I, I've um, well, one, I, our listeners don't know, but I've had the privilege of working with both of you and actually being on faculty with uh, Dolores at Cal State San Marcos, which you know was just amazing to be able to really get to know you and work alongside you and and um, learn with you, but. As a professor, I've also had the opportunity to use your books as our textbooks, you know, um, with San Francisco State and the credential program and or the admin program. And I remember, you know, even as steeped as I am in this work, I remember in one of my early readings of your book, you know, now I guess it's been 15 years ago, but um, I remember the distinction that you made that was the first time I had heard the distinction between um, cultural competency and cultural proficiency. And for so long, those words have been interchangeable. You know, we just go back and, you know, change it up so that it's interesting. And um, really, it was through reading your book that um, it took it to the next level for me of understanding that, you know, competency is understanding and proficiency is what you do with it. Like, how does it show up? How does it manifest? And so now I'm very, very cognizant of, you know, as we do our work through EPIC, about, you know, we're teaching cultural competency because right now our people are just trying to understand what it means to, uh, to, under, to understand, to, mm -hmm. to be empathetic, to, to uh, be reflective. Um, but really our goal has to be proficiency. And so it brings me back to, you know, you did it very well with that, um, the introduction of the continuum um, mm -hmm. where you, you get to see, you know, where you are based on your behaviors and your level of understanding and where our goal is to move on this continuum so we can get to this place of proficiency where our practice is, is demonstrating our understanding, you know. Mm -hmm. There's also a piece about that, um, Nancy, where people say, oh, we're culturally competent and we're culturally proficient because... We, we have two faculty members who speak Spanish. <laughs> and we have holidays and festivals and we have an international day. Yeah. And uh, many years ago, after World War II, the uh, uh, US government sponsored cultural competence as a way for corporate folks to learn about other cultures as they were going uh, abroad to work with other countries. So the emphasis on cultural competence was learning a little bit of language, mm -hmm. learning about cultures, so that people wouldn't get in trouble, uh, uh, you know, the, um, the, uh, violating some of the norms. Yeah. That's not the cultural competence that, that we're describing or that Terry Cross described in culturally competent care originally as a social worker. And uh, so we take it beyond, it's good to know those things. It's good to honor the languages and the cultures and within the community, absolutely. But it's also knowing about how I as an inter in individual interact and relate to people who are different from me. Mm -hmm. So um, what we talk about our mm -hmm. cultural, our journey the metaphor we use, one among many metaphors, uh, is, you know, what's my journey and how do I relate to other people? Mm -hmm. So it's about me in relation to others. Mm -hmm. And then the actions that I take, as you described, it, it's beyond, it goes beyond what do I know about the community, 
but how am I going to interact with them in ways that value who they are? Yes. That manage the, the dynamics, the differences that are there and are natural differences. And then how do we adapt to the changing, uh, the changes that occur within our communities? And then how do we learn from that? So uh, moving from just the, the, the food, fun and festivals to really who am I as an individual and who are we as an organization? Yeah, you know, we we uh, we lean a lot on Banks' work for that, you know, um, and and his uh, levels of of um, multiculturalism, and you know, really using that because it's it's it, it's really ingenious because it's such a simple measure of where you are um, on that continuum too. You know, where where are you operating, and 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 how do we get to transformation where we get to that proficiency place where we're really talking about. You know, it's not only um, what we're doing, but it's also valuing the contribution of others and, and coming from a growth mindset rather than a deficit thinking about, you know, what someone's bringing to the table, even if it's different than what you're used to. And, um, you know, I, I really, I find that there's, there's been so much good work out there that it's just how do we marry them together so, so that people can, can understand and, and use them. Mm -hmm. Two of my high school high points about being a Kelsey in Los Angeles was one meeting James Banks. He came as a speaker once. Nice. And the other time was Maya Angelou. Oh, um, nice. It's a big one. Yeah, it was huge. Nice. Yeah, they were standing room only in the theater. Oh, that's, I, I feel like I'm a little late on the, on the canvas here, you know, to see so, so many of these people who I've grown up just learning about and admiring. But that was also, I think about, you know, the privilege of even being able to work with the both of you and the other people that I've, I've come across. And, and I just think that when I, when I was starting out, you know, as a young faculty, you know, really digging into this as far as research and, and having a deeper understanding of it um, and doing my doctorate at the same time and just having so many incredible leaders around her and having so many incredible white leaders uh, to be, you know, candid that, that um, really modeled for me you know, what's possible, you know, instead of feeling like for so long, it felt like this was work that had been kind of put on, on people of color to do and really understanding that this is, this is work for everybody, but it's, it's the lift is for white folks to really um, engage in this conversation. Cause that's where the change is going to happen ultimately because it's who holds the power. Mm -hmm. At our time together at our, our university, one of the things that I noticed, and we've noticed this across universities, as faculty of color are hired, they're hired and then there's a lack of support for them. Mm -hmm. So um, there's still minorities in number. And then there's the, well, we, we hired you, but um, there's, no, there's a lack of support. Yeah. through the tenure process, through the research, the writing, the service that's required. And that's on white folks too, because mm -hmm. we're the majority there now. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's the majority um, white women. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm talking about in schools of education, departments of education. And that's a shift we've seen over our years in, in higher ed, 
the responsibility of us is to mentor women into the system. And Randy has a wonderful way. He's an amazing mentor, um, not only for uh, men of color, but women of color and women, but he mentors men in the system about the need and the importance of having women in the system. Mm -hmm. And he mentors in the system and up the system. So um, that's what has to happen. And then your point about, um, we've been noticed that we've noticed over the years about it's always people of color that are appointed to the office of diversity, the director Mm -hmm. of diversity. And so we, as, as we travel and and when you ask uh, Bailey about the consulting role, (laughs) <laughs> surprise when we arrive as consultants and people say well wait a minute you're white and we say yeah last time we checked you know how it that been and, but seriously people ask well, what are you as white people going to tell us about diversity and equity mm-hmm. and um, a funny story about that we were at in a particular district, we'll just say far, far away from here. And a young man came up at lunch and said, you know, I have an appointment after lunch and I can't stay, but I want to tell you that when you came in this morning, I was so surprised to see two two white people and Randy and I are nodding. We've heard that before. And he said, but what really surprised me was to see two people your age. And I couldn't imagine <laughs> what two white people was going to tell us. And he said, and I'm so glad I was here because I really benefited from people your age. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so after that afternoon and we got into the car, Randy and I looked at each other and smiled. And I said, at your age. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, and then we have really had people challenge us, you know, mm-hmm. So what do we know? And uh, then we talk about the the system is structured to benefit people like us. And uh, so that's the, yeah. the systems piece. And we got into to that. Which is why yeah. our work is co-authored. So we want to make yeah. sure that we ensure that all perspectives are in the writing. Um, and that's always done with intentionality. And so mm-hmm. no matter how much I know, I still benefit from having my co-authors be people of color and or women, because irrespective of what I know, uh, blind spots persist. Mm-hmm. So it's an important check on our own learning and our own professional work. Yeah. And I, I just wonder when you began back when, you know, desegregation was going on, was there a framework or any type of archive that you were able to reference really that was substantial or were you really like having to lean into this yourself and discover things your own being developed i mentioned robert terry was published his book in 1970 if i recall correctly and pat vital's work developing new perspectives on race was coming out of suburban detroit and so was able to learn from and with them both printed work and their workshops Um, abraham citron who was a professor at wayne state university and wrote a paper in 1969, which is on our website, by the way. Mm-hmm. And the name of the article is um, The Rightness of Whiteness, The Malformation of the Mind of the White Child in the Suburban Ghetto. 
Hmm. <laughs> and reference to that in one of our school districts and a principal Donald that night she came back the next day she said she held it up and she said this damn thing could have been written yesterday <laughs> yeah it, I think you used that paper in in the, in the online course that you did for us yes yeah because I remember reading it going was this written yesterday literally <clears throat> like was this written yesterday yeah, yeah. wow yeah. You know, so it's a, you said something that was um, interesting to me. Um, we had a, a client uh, recently that we, um, as we were preparing to send the consultant, they said, um, you know, we, we were looking at your website and um, we just want to make sure that the consultant you send us is a person of color. Please don't send a white person here. And I said, you know, you need to tell me more about that. Um, and they said, because the, uh, the local NAACP chapter will, will not tolerate it. And I said, well, I said, I would be really interested in having a conversation with you, your, your board and the local chapter, because I think that they may be missing the mark. And I mm -hmm. said, if, if there is a belief that only people of color can lead this work, then we have nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, in fact, the fact that they're asking this makes me say that I want my white consultant to go down there so that white people, because we're talking to majority population of white educators, mm -hmm. that white people can see a white person leading for equity and what that looks like and, and watching because she's very, she's very good, but she's also very transparent with her struggles where she's, you know, where, where she where she has to, you know, what are her pain points? She shares those as, as, and her evolution, right, through this work. And, um, and so I think that's one of the myths. And I, it just reminded me as you were sharing about, you know, showing up with, um, to that district. Um, it's just one of the myths that I think we have to combat is this idea that, you know, how many times we're positioning people of color in these, you know, high, high positions with no support. I can't tell you how many directors of equity that I've met where the, their department is one. Mm -hmm. They don't even have an assistant to help them, you know, and because they're still waiting for that. And it's like, it's not just about hiring. It's how do you re retain and how do you actually um, impact change, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, really, really realizing that this is our work together um, and that white people have a distinct role in this work. I applaud your, your perspective it, it, for a lot of reasons, but primarily because 75% of all the kids, white kids, all the kids in school, K-12 schools are white kids. Mm -hmm. And if we keep making this issue only an issue of people of color, yeah. I think we've really missed the mark. Um, historically, when we had situations like yours, we would send teams out mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that yeah. one way wish to, to deal with it. But yeah, that's, that's, I'm working with a, a I'm coaching a, a provost now at a small college in the Midwest, and we talk on the phone about once a month, and they've, they're starting to set up at the Office of Equity, uh, Diversity. And so we talked last week, and so the central staff got together to plan for the reopening of school. Now, we've been talking for an, uh, a year. Uh, I know her. I know her work. I really value her, white female. She knows the stuff inside out. So she described to me the two days that they, that they were in session, about 10 people, the cabinet. And so I got all done. I said, and to what extent did you deal with equity? And there was this pregnant pause. <laughs> oh, my God. I missed it. And I said, well, I just want to make sure I didn't hear it. So I just want to make sure. And she said, well, go back. 
I said, you know, you're talking about setting up an office of, of equity and diversity. Don't make that that person's responsibility. Yes. That person's responsibility is a cabinet's responsibility. Mm -hmm. What that person will do is help you facilitate across campus. So it's yeah, it just it continues. <laughs> yeah, well, it's 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 a mindset shift. As as long as equity is still seen as an external piece, that um, that you so something we do, then it'll continue to be a checklist item, mm -hmm. as opposed to it is the foundation of which everything that we do is built upon. And then I think we mm -hmm. start to see a shift. But that is. You know, the fact that you can have a, a conversation um, and not talk about equity either directly or indirectly lets me know that you still have a lot of work to do. <laughs> I think that when schools, districts across the country start planning the new start, we're, we're no longer calling it a restart. We're calling it the new start mm -hmm. because they can't restart it's going to be so different the if they try to restart the way it was um those things are not there anymore so we're calling it the new start and and trying to shape some questions and one of the things that's going to be fairly apparent i i think are going to be the disparity the differences all the same. Uh, the, yes, the discrepancies. Disparities. Disparities. <laughs> you two are too cute. <laughs> the inequities. Yes. They didn't all of those. They did not see before. Yeah. And leading that list are going to be the technology issues that they've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And so we've heard in our Zoom conferences, we didn't know that all of our parents didn't have internet. We didn't know that we had so many families living in the same house. Do you wonder, I mean, do you wonder, Dolores and Randy, like, do, do we not know because we don't want to know? That's my belief. Um, I think we just, we choose not to look. Yeah. I think they had not asked those questions. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think they just over, they, they're working with data that's on their dashboard. They're working with uh, flat, linear kinds of data rather than the qualitative stories, the deeper stories. Uh, and now because of this interruption, serious interruption, stories came to them and as they as they went to look for where are these kids if they even went to look for them and in some cases kids came to them or families came to them to say we don't have the access you thought we had um they're finding out those disparities to me that's the subtlety of privilege and entitlement yeah. You know, the, they didn't the, have the to The disparities know. have always been there. It's, it's how people choose to take a look at them. You can't see the kinds of academic disparities we've had in generations and not ask questions. I mean, yeah. you, you discover it because of COVID-19. You know, they've always been there. And S has made them apparent. You know, every state's made it apparent. So um, it's, it's, it's an opportunity, and it's yeah. an opportunity to be seized. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, one, one of the things that was um, um, interesting that kind of came out of this was also, you know, I, I wasn't surprised about the students um, because I already knew that, you know, we, we've talked about the digital divide for so long. I know where some of my students are living. I know what they have access to. And, and um, but what I was, I guess, a little surprised about um, was about the lack of infrastructure and support for classified staff which is, you know, um, and, and I, and so I guess I would be guilty of making assumptions that, you know, well, you're, you're an educator or a para or, you know, involved that you have this. And so as we are, you know, working with some districts to uh, finish out our contracts and provide support for classified, they're, they're finding that um, a good majority of, our, of the classified staff don't actually have access either. They're in this exact same, um, you know, situation as their, as a student, and they never considered it. And and that for me was a big aha about when we talked about equity and we talked about roles um, in schools. Competition and access that it's not just an issue for our kids, for our staff. One of the things we've started doing with our work that builds on that, I'm really pleased that you you shared that perspective. When we work with schools now, we try to get them to understand that every employee in that school is an educator. Some are teachers, some are counselors, some administrators, some are secretaries, some are custodians, but they're all educators. And it's important for us, if we're gonna make systemic change in a school, to understand that the changing the system, everyone in that system needs to understand their role in supporting the classroom teaching. No, because schools do not exist to provide jobs for adults. <laughs> so, you know, how do we how do we fit in that system? So your point is really important. It's, it's key to our value set, too. Well, I think um, as people started examining their roles in districts, they're being paid now. So what are counselors doing? There's no master schedule, you know. Um, there are no suspensions and expulsions going on right now. Uh, mm -hmm. IEPs are really hard to manage right now. Mm -hmm. So um, being able to provide needs for students with special needs, um, what are classified employees doing right now? One district that we work with in the Minneapolis area, their um, paraprofessionals are now doing the work that the uh, um, attendance clerks were doing. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're calling home, they're finding out mm -hmm. and how can we um, deliver packets or how can we, we want you to know where the hot spots are. Um, so some folks that had one job that no longer has, uh, has um, a function at the moment. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And they're doing something else. Yeah. Uh, and so it's interesting that, that roles are now, crisscrossing, uh, you know, roles and responsibilities. And people are learning from those things. Yeah. Um, Bailey, you asked a question earlier about um, were there models for us to learn from mm -hmm. way back in the last century? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had the opportunity to serve on a superintendent's desegregation task force. Mm. 
and we were, our district in Louisiana was 12 years under a court order. Mm -hmm. So you can see folks weren't energetic in uh, <laughs> abiding by desegregation. And so there were 20 people on the team, 10 people African-American, 10 people white. And we were uh, divided into teams of two and two and two and two, African-American and white. And we were charged with learning everything we could about other districts who were developing desegregation plans across the country. And then we were called race relations specialist. Mm. Now there was no job description anywhere for a race relations specialist. Mm -hmm. So we changed our names to human relations specialists. Mm -hmm. And so our jobs were really to go into schools and troubleshoot what was happening between students. So it was uh, student fights and students, you know, student conflicts. When we would get there, what we realized it was conflicts among teachers and students, mm -hmm. teachers and teachers. Mm -hmm. Teachers didn't know how to respond to students that they'd never taught before. Mm -hmm. well, so even African-American teachers had never taught African-American students. Mm -hmm. So uh, white teachers had never taught white students before mm -hmm. until the forced uh, desegregation. So it was fascinating to do that kind of work. And most of it we were doing, we were creating as we went. Yeah. And then we would share with Milwaukee on their desegregation plan, or we would share with Los Angeles or San Diego uh, or Houston Independent Schools. And, uh, and we, were, we were all just learning as we were going, but mm -hmm. we found out it was not so much student against student as it was what the adults needed to learn. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that then brought us to the work of cultural proficiency. And cultural proficiency is not so much about student behavior as it is working with adults so that they learn about themselves in relation to the communities and the families. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I think that's a, a perfect place to kind of think about bringing this to a close because um, I think that is the message, right? That mm -hmm. when we talk about cultural proficiency, it's about how we learn about ourselves in relationship to others. Mm -hmm. And if we, could, if we can focus on that and, and know that um, a part Main part of the process is that self-reflective piece, that, that deeper understanding of self for us to move forward. That is not why I fix you as a student. How do you do better? It's about what do I do to be able to um, engage. I think that's powerful. And and I and I will say that one of the last things you said, uh, Randy, um, that we we will end on is that this is an opportunity, right? We we find ourselves in an opportunity because what. Many people, you know, maybe maybe a lot of us already understood kind of how things have been, but now it's become apparent to the world 
the inequities that have um, long have been long time, you know, in existence mm-hmm. in education. But now it's in, now it's in the forefront. So what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And just a quick thing around culture, yeah. because you make a really important point. In addition to the self-reflection and personal reflection and values and behaviors, it's also, and I'm really impressed by Kennedy's current work, How to Be an Anti-Racist, because it's also functioning on how do you take mm-hmm. a look at policies and practices and change the policies mm-hmm. and practices. So when I work now, when people identify inequities, we say, what's the policy or practice that supports that inequity? That's right. What you need to do to change that. So mm-hmm. the inside out functions at two levels. So thank you for bringing back to that. That's really helpful. Yeah. Well, I thank you. So what a pleasure. I, I can't think of a better way for me to spend my uh, part of my afternoon than in the company of the two of you. Um, it is always such a blessing to to get to just, I could sit at your feet and just listen to what you have to say and and absorb it. But it, it's always a beautiful conversation. I, I always leave enriched. It's a, it's a real opportunity for us to be with you, Nancy, very much so, and to finally meet Bailey. Yeah. Well, ba- Bailey's awesome. She, she is, she is uh, an amazing addition to our team. And this, this, again, it's inspiring because we have a young, you know, white um, leader who, who, who she has dove in and kind of embraced the learning and asked good questions and, and is transparent with her struggles and, um, and it's just, it's been, it's, it's beautiful to, to, to watch her grow. So um, we're glad to have her leading, leading this conversation and, and building um, our, our white equity warriors of the future. You all make me want to cry. <laughs> <laughs> and just from us, um, your questions today have, have helped us in, in our thinking. This has been a rich dialogue Mm-hmm. And your questions have given us opportunities to think. And as soon as we're finished here, I'm going to do some writing. <laughs> oh, I'm jealous, Dolores. I'm jealous. <laughs> some journal writing from the thoughts from today. It's uh, mm-hmm. uh, This was an inspiring opportunity just to give us a, a moment to think about some things and bring some things forward and then help us think about uh, future future actions thank you yeah Yeah, thank you thank you for being there for role models for future generations as they come because like we said you really started with not much to go off of I luckily had a lot to go off of when I was getting my education hopefully that just propels forward thank you so thank you so much have a wonderful day absolutely Visit www.epoceducation.com for resources that will help you to understand and navigate the ever-changing world of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We are a company that trains and transforms with innovative in-person and online equity workshops that support school districts and leaders to build capacity to carry on this work internally. Now go out and have an epic day.